Um, what we're going to do this morning and this whole weekend is we're continuing in our Matthew series. And if you've been with us, we're basically taking the summer and we're going through Matthew. Um, Matthew is one of the four gospel writers at the beginning of the New Testament that give us this account of the life of Jesus. And as Joel kicked off a couple weeks ago, he kind of unpacked Matthew and who he was as a gospel writer and the Jewish audience he was writing to and why that matters and why that makes a difference. Um, and then last week, Pastor Scott um, brought a message on anxiety. It was from the Sermon on the Mount. And kind of cool because the Sermon on the Mount uh, was also largely a Jewish audience. And so we see some of that, that going on there. And today our passage is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so what, what I want you to do is just turn it over to Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 24. And each of the teaching pastors has the opportunity to look over kind of a few chapters. Since we're not doing this verse at a time, kind of section at a time, we get a chance to, to hone in on whatever one we kind of feel would be the one we want to bring before the church. And this is the one that jumped out to me. It's the parable of the two builders, and good chance you know it. It's familiar to you. Good chance you've sung hymns on it. Maybe you grew up, uh, you know, the wise men built the house on the rock, and you, you maybe you've, you've heard hundreds of messages on it. Uh, even this past year and a half as a church, we've spent a whole bunch of time in this passage. Uh, we had a three-week series right when COVID hit called On the Rock. Joel, Rick, and Lonnie preached in that. Uh, when we went through the Beatitudes, we kind of bookended that front uh, and ended that with uh, this message of building on, a bit, building visible faith. So as a church, this has been a very consistent passage. And so why are we parking here again? Um, this continues to be a, a season of many storms for many people. I'm sure that's true of many families, many of the rows in here, you could go down and say, yeah, we got storms going on. We got heavy stuff going on. In our church team, our staff, and families we know, if my inbox has anything to say about it, of the voicemails I get, if the connect cards that we pray through every week has anything to say, is that there's still a lot of storms going on. And so this is a wonderful passage for us to just settle into uh, this weekend. Last week, Scott ended uh, his message on anxiety, talking about those false places we can find security and control. He said, you need to have a firm foundation on the rock. And so this passage and this message actually really kind of continues and builds from where that goes and says, how do I do that? What does that look like? And especially on this Father's Day weekend to say, what does it look like to build wisely in my home? Uh, First of all, if you didn't hear Pastor Scott's message, I encourage you, go back and listen to it. It was awesome. Uh, it was kind of nostalgic for me. Pastor Scott was one of my junior high pastors here. He baptized me in that tank right back there. And so it was really just great hearing him teach the word. Uh, but go back and hear that message because it was uh, really, really, really solid. Um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna just hop into this text. We're gonna read the whole thing. And then I'm gonna just give you five, five points, five takeaways. Five ways that we can build wisely as dads, uh, as believers in Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. That's going to be our structure for today. So let me uh, pick up in verse 24, and we'll hop right in. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, 
and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We might not remember, but this is actually the passage, this is the parable, this is the story that Jesus wraps up the whole Sermon on the Mount. As he's teaching to that Galilean hillside, that crowd that's out there, this is the one picture he wants to leave them with as they leave that day. As they walk off, this is the one that's rattling around in their minds. This is the one that probably made its way into a lot of those uh, conversations around dinner tables that night. This is the one. He could have chosen any image, any teaching point. This is what he used. And so it's really good we pay attention. The first thing we see in this passage is that a wise builder considers the future forecast. When my wife and I, before my wife and I got married, we, we, uh, I'm pretty young, we're 21 years old. Uh, I was just out of undergrad, she was in her last year of nursing school, but before we did, uh, we, we began to meet with a pastor for premarital counseling. And I didn't really know what to expect going into it, it was kind of intimidating, like, uh, but as we did, this pastor, his name was Pastor Stewart, he not only just helped us prepare for a wedding day, he's like, the wedding day, it'll be fine. I was surprised at how, how little time he spent on the wedding day. And it, it wasn't the honeymoon phase or even being newlyweds. He helped us to look farther out. Helped us to say, here's what being married for years and years and years actually looks like. He helped us to consider the future, uh, the, the future forecast, if you will. He helped us understand some of those disagreements we were gonna face. Helped us to, to wrestle through some of those, um, you know, tension points around finances or kids or responsibilities in the home. Uh, you know, and what happens when you have an upbringing, you have expectations, you were raised in a home, and that was very different than the home your spouse grew up in. And so what happens when your experiences and expectations don't match theirs? What happens when you don't line up? How do you get on the same page? Because you guys gotta be a team. And he helped us look and have the long view of marriage because the best time to consider storms is, right before, is before we're right in the midst of them. And my wife and I were 11 years married, 12 this August, three kids, one dog, and I'm so thankful for Pastor Stewart. So thankful. So thankful that he helped us look ahead and to consider a bunch of stuff. You know, when you go to build a house, that's one of the things you wanna think about, is you gotta consider the storms. You gotta consider the weather. Uh, when my wife and I were coming back from Alabama a couple months ago for her schooling, um, I got to sit near this gal who was from Alabama. She grew up there. She was raised there. And so I start talking to her. And we, for whatever reason, got on the topic of houses. And she starts telling me about houses in Alabama. And think about, think about houses in Alabama. Is they're, they're built a lot differently than here in California. And one thing that's interesting is that they got a lot of basements. Got a lot of storm cellars. And if they don't have a storm cellar, then they have the bathroom that's strategically placed in the middle of this house with no windows and a big giant solid tub because there's tornadoes there. And they're looking ahead at the tornadoes and they're saying, how do we need to build this house? Now to the, the, the listeners that day of, of uh, first century Judea, these were the types of storms that they were familiar with. Rain, flood, wind. And this is what Jesus does when he teaches in parables. He takes something that's familiar to them, something they know, something that's from their world, something that's from their experiences, and then he uses that when he teaches, and he says, it's like this. And so in that region, what would happen 
is that when they'd get a heavy rain, because it was such a dry climate, the ground would become really hard. And so the rain, instead of being absorbed in the ground, would actually just uh, flood right on top of it, taking everything with it. And in Luke, the other gospel where we get this parable, um, it says that when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house. Again, a picture of that local weather. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, hey, you know that those storms that come to this land? Those are like the storms that's gonna come to your life. See, a wise builder doesn't just look actually and ask a, ask a good question. They ask a truly wise question. Here's the good question. The good question is what storms might I face? But the better question, in fact, the question that Jesus wants that crowd to consider is this. What's the most extreme weather that I need to be ready for? Uh, for the past few times that I've got up here to preach, had opportunities to teach the word, um, I've given a space reference. And so I kind of feel this obligation, I've got to keep it going. Um, so here's my space reference. When designing a spacecraft, they, the engineers build towards what's called Max-Q. Uh, if you were around during the space shuttle years, you might remember uh, the Challenger, 1984, final flight. It takes off, the engines fire. Here's a picture of it. They got this huge cloud of exhaust, clears the tower, rockets into the sky. In 58 seconds, there's this guy uh, who's calling out basically the updates on the flight. And he says, the shuttle's now entering max Q. Well, six seconds after that, a flame could be seen outside of the right solid rocket booster, basically acting as a blow chart torch about ready to make this thing explode. Because nine seconds after that, 73 seconds, that's exactly what happened. The greatest forces, and soon after, destruction. See, that's the greatest test for the vehicle, is in max Q is to see if it's really gonna hold together in the moment of truth. And that's what the builder's built for. That's the moment, because that's the measure of the entire flight. If they're good there during max Q, then they're good there during the rest of the flight. Because that's when the, the pressures are the most extreme. It's the moment of truth, and it's the moment of proof for that vehicle. And the engineers who build that, they ask that same wise question. What are the most extreme forces? What's the most extreme test that this vehicle needs to be ready for? And that's exactly what Jesus has in view here. The biggest storm, not just the storms of this life, but the real test, the final test of your faith. He has something that's very specific in mind here. He looks towards one specific storm in the future, not during, but actually at the end of your life. And we read it in Romans. It says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account to him. That's what he's talking about. And he's actually been leading up to this. If you look at the three parables that you find in chapter seven, one is about two roads, one is about two trees, and one is about two builders. And notice the progression of there. To start well, live well, and finish well. Begin your journey of faith by choosing the right path. Uh, live out your faith by bearing good fruit and finish strong. Because when that final storm comes and it proves to be what are you really standing on that you'll found to be anchored to one thing or the other thing? 
That's what the storm is. That's what Jesus wants his listeners to look out to the future forecast and to consider. Now, see, by pointing our attention to that final storm, that doesn't downplay or make irrelevant the storms of this life. He actually helps us to understand them better by putting them into perspective. Paul does this in a similar way. In Romans, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To the Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, the, the storms of this life have to be framed within how we look to the eternal hope that we have. Matthew, when it says, uh, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What good is it if you prepare for the storms of this life and forfeits his soul, but you haven't prepared for really the end of the biggest storm? And are the, the storms of this life real? And are they tough? And are they heartbreaking? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know about you, but I don't have a problem focusing on the storms of this life. Actually, they have, they have no problem with me getting my attention. In fact, that's often the problem. They get too much of my attention, and my hope and my eternal perspective gets far too little. See, I'm, I'm worried about solving or avoiding or controlling the storms of this life, and they consume my mind. That's all I think about now, getting through right now. And I spend way too little time thinking about eternity. But if we prepare for the final storm that Jesus is talking about, there's no way that anything in this life is gonna actually shake us to the ground. See, our problem is that we're too concerned with this world and not as if it's passing away, as Paul writes to the first Corinthians. Our treasures are laid up here where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal and not eternity, as Jesus just got saying in the Sermon on the Mount. We think first of our citizenship here and not as our citizenship in heaven, as Paul writes to the Philippians. We fail to do, as Colossians 3 says, to set our hearts and our minds on things above. And instead, as Paul warns Timothy, we get entangled in civilian pursuits. We think way too much of this life and way too little of the next. And so the wise builder considers the future. For the believer whose hope is securely on the rock, you have a great hope to look forward to, a hope that matters for today, a place that he has prepared for you, and that ought to change the way that you view the storms of your life. Shouldn't your eternal security have something to say about your insecurity you might feel today? Shouldn't his sovereignty and his goodness mean something for your anxious attempts at control today? Shouldn't his everlasting joy have something, some impact on your comforts that you chase today? Shouldn't considering that wiping away of every tear mean something for the heartache and disappointment and loss that you feel today? Absolutely. That's what we have to consider. That's what we need to consider as we're building our life, building this house. Listen to what First Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only does a wise builder consider the future forecast, here's number two. A wise builder chooses a firm foundation. There's a choice. Build on the rock or build off the rock. Again, I mentioned those three illustrations, those three parables in chapter seven. Notice also what Jesus has been doing. You know there's that contrast dial on your TVs? Tech probably doesn't want me to mess with it. If you pull out your phone and you're editing a picture, there's that little contrast knob. See, what that is is, as you dial that up, I got a picture of Yosemite, I'll show you what it looks like. Picture's worth a thousand words. As you increase it, the picture gets more vivid. It's kind of washed out, but you increase the contrast and things get a little bit more clear. I think I got one more. You increase it even more, it becomes even black and white. That's the most extreme, that's only two colors. What he's doing in these three parables is he's increasing the contrast knob. He's helping to, 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 to make a distinction here and to make those two things way more clear. There's an invitation to one, and there is a clear, clear warning about the other. Notice the contrast. Two gates, a wide one and a narrow one. Two roads, a broad one and a narrow one. Two destinations, destruction and life. Two groups, the many and the few. Two kinds of trees with two kinds of fruit. Good, bad. Two kinds of builders, foolish builder, wise builder. Two foundations, rock, sand. Two types of houses, an insecure one and a secure one. And that all leads to two outcomes. A great fall or a great weathering through the storm. And when I look back through the Old Testament, not only do I see God making the same type of contrast, dialing up of the contrast between two choices, but I also see the, the people who stand at these, these crossroads, if you will. And I love watching how God comes uh, to invite his people at these places of crossroads to him. In Deuteronomy, God comes to a doubtful people. He reminds this rescued, but the, this now wavering people, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, blessing and curse. And he says, choose life. In Joshua, God comes to a distracted people, and he reminds this group of people that he, he, he just brought them into the promised land. But now instead of worshiping the one true God, they've, they've gotten distracted by all these little G gods in the, in the neighborhood. And they're giving their attention over here. And Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the little g-gods, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, the one, the big g-god. In 1 Kings, God comes to a debating people, and he reminds this group, who he's shown time and time again to be for them and to be their God, and who, who now they're, they're wavering in their faith, and he says, how long will you go limping? That, mean, that word means wavering hesitating between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, then follow him. If, but if they all, then, then follow him. See, notice we, we, we never see this choice, this contrast without an invitation. Choose life, choose whom you will serve, choose whom you will follow. And some of us need that same invitation. Some of us need that same encouragement between some of the choices in our life. And maybe you're at a crossroads. All of us stand at some sort of crossroads. We make tons of decisions every day about a, a, a number of things. But maybe you're stuck at one. And maybe you're even stuck in that considering phase. You got analysis paralysis and all you're doing is just thinking about it. But God's making the, the choice clear. And he's presenting a choice. 
and it's becoming even clearer between the two things, and you're just stuck. And God's inviting you to one. And maybe it's a big one, like an invitation to faith. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow him. But he's making it really clear this is what that looks like. Maybe it's to, to, to take a really significant step of faith, like be baptized. And for years, maybe you've watched people stand up and, and be baptized. And you've just never responded. You're at that crossroads. Maybe it's to join a church. Really join. Maybe it's to join a small group. Be in community with people. Maybe it's to actually be part of the active body of Christ and serve somewhere. Maybe it's a choice to honor him in an area that you've been ignoring him in. Maybe it's a decision for your family. Sometimes your choice looks exactly like that passage in Joshua when it says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what the, the world says. I don't care what the world defines as okay. I don't care what our neighbors think. I don't care what our neighbors are doing. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care if I have to stand alone or be mocked or left out. I'm gonna stand for the Lord. Whatever that invitation for you is, God wants you to make a choice and he wants you to act on it and he wants you to get moving. And that's where we find number three is that a wise builder constructs on the bedrock. In verse 24 of our passage, it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. That is a really, really important and. It says and, not or, right? And. And the reason that's important is because it's the difference maker in this entire parable. If there was a hinge point on this passage, if there's one word you had to circle, it would actually be that and. They both hear. Wise and foolish both hear. This is not a contrast between those who don't know or don't, haven't heard about Jesus or haven't even heard about Jesus and those who have. No, this is a contrast between a crowd that has literally just heard Jesus because they just heard him preach. This is how he's closing the sermon, remember? So they just heard him preach. They just heard him talk about what this kingdom of God is and what it looks like to be a, a member, a, a citizen of this, this kingdom of heaven. And now he's saying to this group that has just heard, here's the difference. What are you gonna do about it? And that's the same question that we have for us today. What will I do with the words of Jesus? What will I do with what God says? What will I do with God's way? How will I respond? Will I go and will I live it out? Or will I ignore it and build on sand? James writes, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's not alive. That's dead. You see, if, even if we just consider, that leaves us with just a faith of knowledge. If we, if we just choose, that leaves us with empty words. But if we actually construct if we actually build, if we put this faith into motion and action, that proves our faith to be alive and genuine. One author describes it this way, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, it's meant to be obeyed. It's not just what you know, it's what you do with what you know. And I'll give you an example from this past year. Uh, the beginning of COVID, Remember, remember, we're out of a bunch of stuff, right? You go in places, no toilet paper, all the stuff. Uh, one of the things I was shocked to find that we were out of, uh, I'm doing my grocery shopping, I'm going down the aisle, and uh, no bread. No bread. No sandwich bread. I have two six-year-olds at home, and PB&J is life. So no bread is a big deal in the Peterson household. And I'm like making bread out of like, you know, whole wheat hamburger buns and stuff, like trying to make PB, like makeshift PB bread. It's like, eat it, it's great. No bread. 
And so luckily what I did have at home was some flour. And uh, so what I, what I did was I, I started to, to make bread pretty regularly at home so we could have bread. And, and for a season, I was, I was a baker, amateur baker, not a very good baker. I barbecued bread once, that was cool. Tried it, wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but worth a try. But I was a baker. And before that, I was not. Didn't know how much I knew about how to make bread, if I heard how to make bread, if I read a book about bread, if I hung out with some other people who made bread. Not baking bread meant not a baker. And if I claimed to be a baker, but I made no bread, I would just be fooling myself. And listen to what James writes. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't fool yourself. This is, what the, this is what Jesus says about the sheep of his pasture. My sheep hear my voice. They're hearers. And I know them. And, another really important and, they follow me. See, uh, early Christians in the church actually didn't, didn't prefer to call themselves Christians. Christian, the only time we find it in the Bible is actually from Gentiles looking at inside the faith and saying, that those Christians. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a very kind term. It was an insult. It was like, yeah, you little party of Christ. It wasn't a good thing. And what historians believe that the early um, church preferred to be called was actually followers of the way. Coming out of that passage in John, Jesus said, you know, I'm the way and the truth and the life. They wanted to be called followers. And even in, in the New Testament, we read how they're, they're disciples. You see, they weren't just believers in Christ. They were followers of Christ. See, not actually following and living out what the master said is not only foolish, but it will prove to be no faith at all. And look at the section right above this parable in Matthew chapter 7, and it's really strong, but it's really sobering. In verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does same word, the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's right before this passage. That's exactly what he has in mind. And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And that begs the question to each of us. Each one of us should want to ask that question, well then, how do I not get fooled? How do I make sure that, that I actually have a true, genuine faith? And I'm just gonna take it to Ephesians 2 because this is super important. Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. Here it is. This is not from yourselves, so it's nothing we do. It's a gift of God. Gifts are unearned. But not by works, so it's not earned, so that no one can boast, because we did nothing, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So not by works, not say by doing, but for doing, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. There might be no better way of understanding the gospel and what true faith looks like than right there. And right at the end of that passage is actually a great picture of what faith looks like. Three simple words. Great to wake up every day and remember these three words. Walk in them. Did you know that the most common picture that we get in all of the Bible for following Jesus, for growing up spiritually, for living out your faith, is walking. 
walking. Walking is not super hard. It's not super technical, even though it is like a online, an a, you know, Olympic sport, speed walking. It's not super technical. I remember a triple jump in the seventh grade, trying to figure that out, get my legs to actually do triple jump. Not good. Walking's not that way. Walking is just one step after the other. My two-year-old is walking around because he's learned to put one foot in front of the other. And for us, that's the picture God wants you to have when you think about your faith. One step after the other. And for you to look at what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the one thing right in front of me that God would have me do? And maybe even right now, we know that the Holy Spirit, for the believers, that he lives and dwells inside of us. And that already in this room, there might be something that, that God has even brought to your attention right now. And you know that thing. Maybe you know that step. And you're still in that crossroads. But God's brought it to your attention. And he's saying, choose, and now take a step. Get moving. Live this out. And maybe, dads, for our families, it would be to, to do, as Paul says, to spur one another on and to help our kids take steps. When I, walk, I have a little two-year-old Micah, and when I walk alongside him, sometimes I gotta help him take some steps. I'm helping him walk, I'm helping him move, I'm helping him to grow. And so I'm helping him come alongside. See, in that time, buildings were built exactly that way. Not today where you bring in the big concrete mixer, they, they're built one stone at a time on top of the foundation. That's how the foundation on top of the rock was built. Recently, I was digging some fence post holes at our house, and more than once, the, uh, the, the, th the thought crossed my mind, do I, really, do I really need to dig this deep? And notice this detail we get in Luke's account of this story. It says, the wise builder dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. See, it was hard to go down. It's hard to go deep. And more than once, I found myself Googling. I'm like, okay, uh, how deep do I have to go? One third to one height, the height of this pole? That seems excessive. One half. And then so I'd, I didn't like what I heard, so I like go check another page, you know, like one third, one half. One, you know, I'm looking for a second opinion, can't find something different. I'm like, somebody's gotta be proven that like three, three inches is great. Um, <laughs> we're good. And then I, I was also considering, you know, I, I'm, I'm removing the old one, so there's this other concrete in there. And I'm like, okay, uh, do I really need to get all that concrete out of there before I pour something new? Maybe I could just kind of like chip it off and then I'll just make like a superstructure down there. It's fine. It's just all these ways to, to get me to compromise. Compromise digging deep. Compromise doing it the right way. See, that's exactly what the enemy does. He wants you to cut corners. He wants to get you to give up. He says, it takes too long. It's too hard. It costs too much. Nobody's actually even gonna know if you just stop right there at the hard pan. People driving by, they only just they see that. But the wise builder, he knows the difference doing it right. He knows the difference that being anchored to the rock makes. And it doesn't matter for him if it's difficult. He says, I'm, I'm putting in the time. I'm being faithful. Even when no one sees it. And I love what the Bible says about the things that are unseen. If you look at the news cycle today, um, 
we've had a lot of stories, maybe it's just lately, maybe I just read the news, but there's a lot of secrets that have come out, aren't there? And something that's very consistent about them, bad secrets. Seems like they're all bad secrets. They're all affairs, they're all harassments, they're all bullying, addictions, destructive lifestyles, admission scandals, insider tradings, there's shady secrets everywhere coming to light. But notice what Jesus, when he writes about secrets in Matthew chapter six. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on, again, this is all in the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes on and talks about giving. And he goes on and he talks about prayer. And he says, it is beautiful when those are done in secret. Those are amazing secrets. And that is beautiful because you know who gets the glory? Who gets 100% of the glory is God. Because he knows and he sees and he gets it all. And there's no pride because God knows and God sees. Listen to what the Lord says to Samuel. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at your heart. Bobby said it earlier. God cares about your heart. God cares about what's going on here. God cares about when you parent your kids, when you raise your kid. God cares about what's going on in their heart. Not just their, just their behavior and their actions and stuff, but where's that coming from? Where, how, where, how is their heart doing? What's the condition of their souls? That's what God cares about. And in this surfacy, superficial world we live in, where everything under the sun will try to get your eyes off this foundational work, that's a hard work, but it's a good work. Notice what Jesus, how he scolds the Pharisees. He says in Matthew 23, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside might be clean. Stop worrying about the outside. Stop worrying about the stuff above the ground and ignoring what's underneath. See, something about storms that's true is that storms reveal what's really going on underneath the surface. I've heard it said that you are who you are when no one's looking. Storms have this way of showing and exposing to us who we really are. They have this way of like bumping our cup and what's inside comes spilling out. And maybe for yourself, again, don't, look, don't start with other people, start with yourself. Maybe you've seen that bumping happen this past year. You've seen some stuff spilling out. And maybe some of that has been some really good dug deep moments for you. Really solid. Wow. Thank you, God, for, for how I weathered that piece. But maybe there's been some bumping that's happened and some things got unearthed in your life that you said to yourself, wow, I sure thought I was more stable, more grounded, more secure than that. I can't believe that was, that was coming out. I can't believe that was, that was shown to be true. What happened? And that brings us to number four of, for a wise builder is that a wise builder corrects structural issues. A few weeks ago, I saw this in a news story. There was a bridge that spans the Mississippi and, and uh, the Mississippi River. It's between Tennessee and Arkansas, and it just been suddenly closed. Maybe you saw this. And what happened was there was this inspector. He, inspector, he's out this, there on this new uh, new schedule, routine inspection, and he's looking at these giant sp- steel beams, these giant ones that go across. That's his job for the day. He's going out there, and what he finds is he finds a crack, big crack. 
Huge crack. All the way through crack. And immediately, he gets on the phone and he calls the Arkansas Department of Transportation. And apparently, we don't know that conversation, but we know it wasn't satisfying to the urgency that he felt because he hangs up and he calls 911. And the 911 uh, dispatch, uh, they had this little media player on the news article, and me, I can't help myself but click it, and I'm like, I want to listen into that conversation. Of course, I got two minutes. And so this gal in the dispatch picks up, and she's like, 911 emergency, do you need a police, fire, or ambulance? And he's like, we got a crack in the bridge. And she's like, oh, okie Um where are you calling from? Who are you? Um, where are you? And this is a quote from him. He says, we just found a super critical finding that needs traffic shut down in both directions on the I-40 Mississippi River Bridge. We need to get the people off immediately. There was an urgency of correction. See, correction like secret is not another bad word. Proverbs 3.12 says this. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Just like that story, there is an urgency to how we respond to places that need correcting. A wise builder welcomes it. Because like that inspector, he knows how dangerous and potentially destructive and deadly it is he doesn't do anything about it. If there's an indication of cancer in your physical bodies, they start doing a whole bunch of stuff. It's not ignored. You go biopsy it. You explore treatment options. You aggressively go after that cancer. And if I was to tell you right now there's a viper in your home, guy's not a car, a snake. And I was to say, okay, we're done here. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna go home. Your wife would not turn to you and say, hey babe, what's for lunch? She would say, no, 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 we're going home immediately. I'm calling this, we're, we're getting this taken care of, that snake is gonna be out of here, we're gonna take care of that immediately. You wouldn't go home and toy with it, you wouldn't go home and ignore it, you wouldn't take it lightly, you would remove that viper immediately. And what's crazy about that bridge story is that as the couple weeks in the news cycle progressed, that crack had been ignored for years. And it had been getting worse. Two years before that, there was an inspector of the cables. And he was out there with a drone. Okay, let me tell you something. The Department of Transportation had this, that when asked about their policy in, in inspecting this bridge, they said, you know, our policy, it's written in, is to go through it, and I quote, inch by inch. This guy two years ago caught it on a drone. Three years, that's a picture of it. Drone footage. Three years before that, so five years before this 911 call, there's a kayaker. And you can see the crack on the bridge from the kayaker. It was there to be seen. It was deadly, destructive, and getting worse but it was ignored. Listen to the beautiful prayer that David prays in the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a prayer. 
God, is there anything right now that I just need to get right with you on? Is there anything I need correction on? Don't have me looking at other people. Look at, Lord, what in my heart do I need to align with you? See, one of my favorite stories of correction in the Bible is uh, John chapter eight. It's the story of the woman who's caught in adultery and just the gentleness of Jesus as he brings this correction. He dismisses these entrapping accusers. He doesn't heap shame on her. He just says to her, John 8, go. And from now on, sin no more. Here's my forgiveness. You don't have to earn it. Now now just go. And don't keep living that way. Don't go run back to that same hurtful, destructive thing. Correction is good. See, ignored problems, they they just get worse. They entangle, they complicate, and nothing good comes from them. But that loving, gentle, kind correction of Jesus, your life needs it. Your home needs it. And dads, your kids need that. This is the last one for for today. Uh, A wise builder credits the rock. See, when the storms beat against that house, here's what happens. The storm's beating the side of the house, but the the house isn't leaning on itself. The house is, is pulling even tighter on the rock that it's founded on. And the rock holds. The rock's the real hero here. The rock's the one actually saving the building. People may see you, they might see the, the building of your life, but the rock is the one that deserves the real credit. It's not the wisdom of man, but the strength of the rock. Second Corinthians says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And how beautiful it is when we get to point to him. What an amazing testimony it is to people. It wasn't my strength. Let me tell you where that came from. Let me tell you about what God's done in our family, what God has brought us through. And what an amazing way to parent that we give credit to the rock to our kids. That we say, you know, our family, we don't grieve like other families grieve. We don't have hope like other families have hope. We don't have a joy that's based in circumstances. We have a strength that's so different. We're a peculiar people. And I'll tell you why, because I'm pointing our family to the rock. God gets all the credit there. And that's, that's the prayer that we have for our kids is that, that they might see the way we point to the rock and that they might too found on the rock too. That they would put their trust and their hope and their faith in the rock of salvation as well. We're gonna end today by, by singing together. But what I wanna have you guys do is uh, I wanna have you stand up and we're gonna read these five things together. Let's read these out loud all at once. A wise builder considers the future forecast. A wise builder chooses a firm foundation. A wise builder constructs on the bedrock. A wise builder corrects corrects structural issues. And a wise builder credits the rock. Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for this passage, a chance to be in it to remind ourselves, Lord, of who you are, of who you've called us to be, of what you've called us to do, of what you want us to consider, of who you want us to choose. 
Lord, even thank you for the good work I know that you've been doing, even in this, this time, Lord, to bring clarity, to bring encouragement, to bring about a desire for action in your church. And Lord, I pray for boldness in this group, God, that you would help us to take steps. Help us, Lord, to be a, a church that has a faith that is alive and moving and making a difference. The kind of difference that we talked about even earlier with here locally in this world. Lord, may we be on fire for you, living for you, going out and doing, Lord. God, especially for the dads in this room, Lord. Use them. Use them in mighty ways, God, for your glory. And God, may every single person in here give you credit, give you glory, because that is, Lord, the, the, the reason we exist. That in all things, whether we eat, sleep, drink, whatever we do, that we would do it all for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that all God's family said.